Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick Vinzant. Coming up in this episode, The Bible and movie running. We read it in ways that make it meaningful to us, and that frequently means departing from how the authors originally wanted it to be read. Far too frequently, negotiations with the text take place so that someone can use the Bible as a weapon or a wedge or as a wall of separation or to structure power in favor of their own identities. There are a lot of conspiracy theorists who suggest that the Nephilim are still around, that giants still walk the earth, and they're hiding out in caves in Afghanistan. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, subscribe. Leave us a rating or a review. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. If you're a new listener, welcome to the show. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much for all of your support. So our first guest studies the Bible, translating ancient texts to find out what the Bible really says, what it doesn't, and what that means for today. Religion isn't something that we usually talk about on this show. So I want to just say that the goal of this episode isn't to invalidate or validate anything that anybody believes about religion. It's just to take a look at a historically significant book and find out how it came together, what it originally said, and how that meaning has changed over time. I think it's important when we're talking about something that may have deep personal significance to people to disclose any biases that I might have. I was raised Roman Catholic, but I'm no longer religious, and I don't honestly even really know what I believe. This is Bible scholar and Bible translator, Dr. Dan McClellan. Does the Bible say what we generally think it says, or have translations been lost throughout time? People's uh, readings of the Bible have changed throughout time, and if we work hard, we can do our best to try to reconstruct the interpretive lenses that they would have brought to the text anciently to try to say, we think this is most likely what this text originally meant, but because most people approach the Bible devotionally as an authoritative uh, spiritual document, they want it to be relevant, they want it to be meaningful. And if everybody read the Bible according to what it meant 2,000 or 2,500 years ago, it wouldn't be incredibly meaningful because the world has changed so much. And so we read it in ways that 
make it meaningful to us. And that frequently means departing from how the authors originally wanted it to be read and to function and how the original audiences wanted it to uh, be read and function. And so, yes, it's it's changed throughout time. That's an inevitability. And we do our best to try to figure out what it originally meant, but that usually doesn't serve the interests of people who are approaching it devotionally just because frequently it complicates their uh, understanding of the Bible's nature and function and makes it less meaningful, makes it less useful to them. And so a lot of people prefer uh, whatever makes it more meaningful and more useful to them. Would we be better served then, I guess, that if we just kind of forgot about the words and focused on the message? I think there's a there's a degree to which we do that already unconsciously. Um, people are usually are not knowingly saying, we're going to twist this around, we're going to say what we want it to say. Um, but I, I think we do that. But yeah, I think there would be value in at least consciously being aware that we're negotiating with the text. And I think if people if people believe that the text is inspired, if people believe that this is God's voice speaking through the text in one way or another, then hopefully they can recognize that its meaning is going to change. That's an inevitability and that's not a bad thing. And so I would advocate for consciously negotiating with the text with a desire to try to uh, approximate what one believes God's will might be. And hopefully that means more unity with other people. That means advancing the interests of marginalized, suppressed, uh, minoritized groups. Far too frequently, negotiations with the text take place so that someone can use the Bible as a weapon or a wedge or as a wall of separation or to structure power in favor of their own identities. Is that, has that, that always been the case, though, or is that more of a recent thing? I think it has always been the case. We can look in the Bible and we can see places where authors are saying what they're saying in order to uh, structure power in favor of their own uh, ethnic identities or ideological identities. Or, uh, you know, we have priestly texts that are trying to structure power in favor of priests over and against the common people. Then we have other texts where the prophets are saying, no, the kings and the priests are wrong, and we're going to restructure power in our favor and over against the kings and the priests. So you have these two perspectives in the Bible, for instance, one that uh, Israel shouldn't have a king, that God is Israel's king. And then you have the other perspective that, no, the king is good. The king is God's agent on earth. And so, uh, yeah, it's going on even originally in the very text themselves. Okay. I'm, I'm a big numbers person. It's just kind of how, like, my brain works. If you were to say, all right, 100% is this is what was meant at the time, whatever the time is, we're 10% off from what that is now, 20%? Like, how close would you say that we are to this was what, at the time, again, whatever the time is, what was originally conceived? I'd say on a good day, maybe we just get past halfway, just get past 50%. But I think it differs depending on what kind of text we're looking at, because there are a lot of historical narratives where the text is not incredibly difficult to understand. We can read these these historical narratives and say, okay, so-and-so did X to so-and-so and then went from X place to Y place. That's not incredibly difficult to understand. But in terms of 
what the significance of this is, why uh, the authors were writing it the way they were, why the figures were doing what they were doing, I would say we're lucky if um, half the time we uh, understand precisely what they were getting at. And, and, and I mean just the general audience. I think scholars get a little closer, uh, but we can't approach being 100% positive about 100% of the text, not even remotely. For the stuff that we kind of get wrong in that aspect, is it big differences in the sense that like, okay, well, they said one and we interpreted it as 10, or they said six and we thought it was 6.5? Like, are we making big mistakes or just kind of like, ah, six of one, half a dozen of the <laughs> other kind of mistakes? I think there are examples of both. And I think it, there is more of an incentive to be further off and to be okay with being further off the more useful a text is for uh, a given purpose that, that we want it to serve. And so a lot of the hot-button issues, I think people are frequently far more off on uh, by orders of magnitude. For instance, things that have to do with the LGBTQ plus community, things that have to do with abortion, things that have to do with slavery, things that have to do with uh, the subjugation of women. These are these are things where people want certain ideologies to be present, and so they're more willing to to be far away subconsciously. They're not knowingly being far away, but that's where I think the utility of the text pushes us further away from what was originally intended. And so I think the more prominent a text is in debates going on today, the more likely we are pretty far off from, from what it probably originally meant. Can we tell going back if it was supposed to be something that was followed to the letter or if it was always kind of more of, you get the idea, kind of a, a book? Yeah, I, I think for the Hebrew Bible, it was largely a you get the idea. And a lot of these texts were written uh, to be circulated within closed circles, like within the authoritative groups. Uh, and they probably weren't widely known, like the Torah was probably not widely known and widely followed until around the second or the first century BCE, which is, so the whole Hebrew Bible has been written by this period. And texts were still not functioning the way they function today. At that time period, the kind of locus of authority was not in the text, but in the idea. And the text was just one iteration of it. It was just one version of it that has been materialized. And it's kind of the opposite today. We place the authority in the physical text itself. Uh, and the idea that's behind it does not carry the same weight because that is malleable, that is manipulable, that is changeable, whereas the text is the text and it's not changing. So there has been a shift in where we place the authority between around the New Testament and today. And I, and I think the, the Renaissance, the Reformation, and the Enlightenment uh, kind of played a significant role in the way we uh, look at the authority of text today and thinking about the letter of the text rather than the spirit. But yeah, I would say for most of the Bible, it was really the spirit more than the letter. Do you think that that shift at all has contributed to or caused kind of a shift away from religion that we have seen over the last decades or so that we're now taking a literal 
literal interpretation of something that in times can be clearly wrong. I think that has contributed to some things that have accelerated that. Uh, when we come out of the Enlightenment, we've got these these competing forces, this idea of revealed re religion versus this idea of, of rational religion. Um, and the revealed religion in many ways adopted a lot of the hermeneutics, a lot of the epistemological frameworks, so how we know what we know, um, in order to try to prove to rational religion that revealed religion was rational and made sense. Um, and so when we get into the 19th century and we have debates about slavery, we have debates about um, evolution and these kinds of things, uh, this is where the idea of inerrancy is kind of ginned up within this debate. It's kind of a line drawn in the sand as a way to distinguish the people who are really on our side versus the, the people who are not. But the problem is that is a very sharp, brittle line. And so I think a lot of people who are used to that kind of black and white conceptualization of biblical religion, because it's so brittle, it breaks so easily. And so as people come to understand the Bible better, as we are democratizing information about what the Bible says and what it originally meant using the internet and other uh, uh, social media, that uh, is snapping for a lot more people. Um, like, when we look back at it, though, what would you say is kind of the big issue in translating? Like, this is what makes this difficult. For the longest time, we think of translation as just kind of taking this set inherent meaning and then just spitting out uh, a one-to-one -one correspondence to it in another language. And that's just not how language works. Uh, and so I think that's... In translation now, we're becoming aware that, you know, we have positionality. We are looking at these texts from a perspective even when we're translating them, and that influences how we translate them. And so we can really do our best to, to try to approximate what the original authors intended, but there's a degree to which we're always, it's always just going to be a rough approximation. Um, and one of the things that I usually say when people talk about, oh, what translation is the closest to the original, what translation is the best— is that's going to have a lot to do with how close you are to the, the source culture and the source history and the source language, as well as what you want to do with it. Because people will engage Bible translations for different reasons. And if you just want to understand what's being said, we can translate it one way to try to facilitate that. But we're going to have to make a decision about how informed you are or how informed we think you are about the text. So a metaphor, I may have to translate into something that's more native to the target audience's own society. So for instance, there's this famous story about Lamb of God uh, being translated for um, some Inuit communities where they don't know what a lamb is and they don't know, they so they have no concept. It would not be a translation to render Lamb of God because they have no idea what that is. So they render seal of God because people are used to having and raising seals and eating seals for meat and using their skin and things like that. So that's a rough approximation. It doesn't match exactly how that metaphor is used in the New Testament, but it's a lot better than giving them a more literal translation that they have absolutely no concept of. Uh, and so, yeah, a lot of that depends on, on what they're approaching the text for. Is it a missionary tool? 
Is it an administrative tool? Is it supposed to help pastors? Is it supposed to help parents teach their children? Is it supposed to help children understand the text? So we can have high quality translations aimed at all of those uh, functions and they can all be very different. Um, but yeah, it depends on who's reading it and why. I know this is kind of a basic question, but as we've been talking about it, I've realized that like, I don't really know what the Bible is in the sense that like, wait a minute, was it written? Like, when did we get the Bible? Was it a bunch mm -hmm. of different books? Like what language is it originally? Like, I don't know where it came from in that sense of like, all right, this was when it was put together. This is the language it was in, and this is who wrote it. Yeah, it's uh, it's phenomenally complex, and we don't have something we can call the Bible until around the 4th century CE. So like after Nicaea is when we first bring things together into a single text. And so everything before that is is separate documents that they could be grouped together and they could circulate as a group, but that grouping could be different from time to time and from place to place. Uh, and so for the Hebrew Bible, that's being written between around 1000, maybe a little earlier than 1000 BCE, all the way down to about 165 BCE. It's probably the earliest to the latest uh, layers of the text in there. And some of it is very early poetry uh, being written by community leaders. Some of it is uh, legal texts that are being written by cultic and uh, state authorities. Some of it is uh, prophetic material being written by prophets. A lot of it is narrative, historical narrative that's being written again by cultic and state authorities in order to try to produce kind of a foundation myth about where we came from that helps them um, kind of curate their own nation of what the notion of what the state is. Uh, and so that comes together in a complex way, people are adding to it, people are putting text together, people are editing the text, some of those texts are dropping off, some of those new texts are being added later. And around by around the end of the first century CE, so around the time the New Testament is being composed, the Hebrew Bible as we understand it today was more or less settled. Um, we see the last debates taking place uh, within rabbinic literature around the first century CE talking about mainly um, Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs as the only possible text where they're like, we're not sure about these yet. Uh, but by 100 CE, that's pretty much settled. The New Testament is uh, the earliest text we have are the uh, writings of Paul and not all of the Pauline epistles were written by Paul. Some of them were written decades after his death, but the earliest texts are First Thessalonians, uh, Romans, things like that. And uh, we have the Gospels being written after that. We have other texts being written after that. We probably have texts of the New Testament being composed into maybe getting close to 150 CE. So in the second century, we still have some texts being composed. And then there are other texts that are being composed by other writers in the second century, uh, particularly Gnostic authors, that are kind of presenting an alternative perspective on, on the Christian gospel. Uh, and we start to see debates about which of these texts are authoritative, which are not in the second century, and then to the third century. And around the fourth century is when we see uh, that debate kind of settling down and deciding on what's going to be in. And it's around the end of the fourth century that we finally have 
the first kind of authoritative declaration of what's going to be in the Bible that more or less matches what we have today. But there are some interesting exceptions. Uh, for instance, the uh, Ethiopian Orthodox Tawakado Church uh, has a canon that is significantly expanded. There are a lot more texts in that canon than there are in most other Christian canons. And that's because a version of the the Christian scriptures was brought down to what we now call Ethiopia at the time, the kingdom of Aksum. And it was a Greek translation of the Septuagint that included things like First Enoch, a very influential, famous text that most folks don't include in their Bible anymore. Um, but yeah, it's it's complex, a lot of different people writing for a lot of different reasons, uh, and it came together in a separate and complex manner. Um, the Hebrew Bible came together in one way, the Christian scriptures came together in another, and then when we first can speak about a single Bible, that's hundreds of years after the death of Jesus uh, in the late 4th century CE. Do we know why certain things were included and why certain things were left out? The, so the idea that there were specific questions and specific criteria that determined what were in or out are actually kind of post hoc rationalizations. The driving factor was which texts were in the most widespread use within Christian congregations around Christendom. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with these debates about, well, is this, does this, is this consistent with this? Is this likely authentic or is this not authentic? So I, I mentioned First Enoch. That was something that early Christian authors were like, hey, this is really influential. However, it seems very unlikely that this text survived from before the flood. And it contradicts itself internally. And then it also contradicts some of the stuff we've got going on in the Gospels and elsewhere. And so that kind of fell out of favor because it couldn't really hang in, in those debates. And communities just stopped using it. And so what happens in the third and the fourth centuries is you have Christian leaders going around and basically polling all the congregations to try to figure out what texts are considered authoritative and are allowed to be read in our meetings and, and are considered uh, divinely inspired. And then when that kind of started firming up, that's when you had people saying, okay, well, let's identify what is shared between all these texts. Oh, they all have apostolic origins, or at least are based on apostolic authority, or, oh, they all affirm this doctrine or something like that. Most of that was a later rationalization. And it was really uh, what was most in most widespread use that was the driving factor in the canonization, at least of the New Testament. I guess the way that I always think about it, right, and my imagination fills in all of the gaps, is I just imagine like there's 10 guys in a room at the Council of Nicaea, and they're like, all right, copy this part, put it over here, like <laughs> copy and paste. Like that's, hey, this way, let's, let's leave that part out, right? Like that's, <laughs> but that doesn't sound like that's really how it happened necessarily. Now, that's a, that's a popular idea about how it happened, and one of the reasons is because that serves a lot of structuring of power today. If we can frame what went on with the canonization of the Bible as basically an executive meeting that we might imagine taking place within some corporation today, then that allows us to kind of, it, to some degree, vilify what was going on and say we can, you know, their their decisions were obviously corrupt. But that it's not really an accurate uh, depiction of what went on. It was mainly Christian communities using these texts and people going around and saying, okay, well, it seems like these are the texts that most everybody's using. And then the councils basically said, 
approved. And so um, apart from the leadership condemning certain authors and certain texts as heretical, and that was mainly the Gnostic literature, but there were other, uh, other texts as well. Apart from, from that uh, kind of explicit condemnation of those texts, everything else was, was just what was most popular. I keep thinking about like the NBA All-Star game. Like, who do the fans <laughs> like? Well, this is who they yeah. like. All right, well, let's, let's, <laughs> let's put those ones in. And, but, and there's always debate at the margins as well. Somebody's like, well, they shouldn't have made it in when we left right. this guy out. And, and it was very similar. The, the book of Revelation, for instance, was just kind of there. And everybody was like, yeah, we love all these guys. And then there's Revelation. And then it wasn't until around the time of the Reformation that the um, Roman Catholic Church finally said, okay, that we're formally making Revelation canonical. Are you ready for some harder slash listener submitted questions? Yeah, absolutely. What is Jesus's actual name? So uh, here's another instance where we are, the best we can do is a rough approximation. So uh, the name in the Hebrew Bible from which Jesus's name originates is Yahoshua, which is Joshua. Now, when we get into the Greco-Roman period and into uh, the Common Era, the period in which the New Testament is written, that name has kind of changed a little bit. And now it is this Aramaic name that was likely pronounced by a lot of people, uh, Yeshua or Yeshua. Now, the interesting thing is there are dialectical differences between how these names are pronounced. For instance, my name is Daniel. That's how I pronounce it. But when I speak Spanish, it's not Daniel, it's Daniel. And that's a, that's a different way to pronounce my name. And, and that has to do with language. But there are, there are dialectical differences in how words were pronounced anciently. And the Shibboleth episode from the Book of Judges is one example of that. But people in Galilee pronounce things differently. And there is pretty good scholarship that indicates that they would not have pronounced the little A on the end. So whereas many people think it's Yeshua or Yeshua, they probably pronounced Yeshu. Um, and so I think the best argument, the best closest approximation we can get right now is that somebody who grew up with Jesus, someone who lived in Nazareth, probably would have referred to him as Yeshu or Yeshu or Yeshu or, or something like that. Was that a common name? Uh, it was a very common name. And we, uh, it changes because as we go into different languages, we have to transliterate. We use different ways of spelling things so that people who are native in our language and not the language the name is coming from know how to pronounce it. And so when it goes into Greek, it goes in as Jesus. And that may represent the way it was pronounced in Galilee, but we also have that S on the end. And then as it gets into Latin, it's Jesus. And then it was probably pronounced uh, around the time the King James Version was translated, probably something like Jesus. And then the I pronunciation gave way to this J letter, and now we pronounce Jesus. And it is a transliteration of a transliteration of a transliteration of a transliteration, but it's still the same name, just like my name is the same, whether someone can pronounce it the way I pronounce it or was it, whether they pronounce it Daniel or some other way because English is not their native language. 
Are, are there any indications in any other kind of historical literature that mention him? Or is that too early for that time? You know, like I can think yeah. of the example that I always think of is like, okay, back in the 1500s or whatever, if there was a huge volcanic eruption in India or wherever, somebody somewhere else may have also mentioned like, hey, we saw all these ash clouds in the sky. So is there any corroboration, I guess, of, I'll use dramatic language, how big of a deal he was in any other kind of texts? There's nothing that's directly contemporaneous with his life. The, the closest we get to an outside attestation of Jesus is probably Josephus, uh, who is a, a Jewish writer ro writing for a Roman audience at the very end of the first century CE. And he has two references to Jesus. Uh, and one of them has been significantly altered by later Christian writers, where it's like praising Jesus as the Messiah. And that's very clearly a corrupted text. But most scholars agree that it is probably expanding on an original reference to Jesus, who people called the Messiah. Uh, it doesn't really tell us much, except to say that he had a following and the following is still around. Um, so most of the corroborating data is going to come from uh, 60 to 100 years after Jesus's life. And really all it attests to is how quickly Christianity spread around the Roman Empire, uh, how early Christians seem to have worshipped. So we have this letter from uh, a guy named Pliny, who's writing home to uh, Roman leadership saying, hey, we found these Christians. I don't really know what to do with them. Do I kill them? Do I just beat them a little bit and let them go? What's, what kind of crime is Christianity? And we have the response uh, saying, you know, just smack them around a little bit, tell them that they're not allowed to, um, you know, they've got to worship the, uh, the state gods and stuff like that, and then let them go. And if they do it again, then, then you know, you've got to put them to death. But they, uh, Pliny describes Christians gathering in the morning and singing hymns to Jesus as if to a god. So we can get a bit of a witness to how early Christianity was spreading and how it was functioning. But in terms of Jesus himself, there's not really anything that's close to contemporary with his life. Is that odd, though? Not really. This time and this place, we don't really have a ton of uh, data. We don't have a ton of texts. The destruction of Jerusalem, for one, uh, around 70 CE, between 68 and 70 CE, destroyed a lot of uh, a lot of records and people ran off and were in hiding for a long time but we just don't have much uh, to cover that period in that place anyway uh, there's a Jewish author named Philo and then Josephus are really our main sources of history for Judea in the first century Philo is roughly contemporaneous with Jesus and Paul and then Josephus is coming decades after. But if we did not have those two authors, we would know next to nothing uh, about the history uh, of this period. So no, it's not incredibly unusual. People try to paint it as if if this guy was real, we would know about it. We would have records. We would have uh, you know the the Roman records of crucifixion and stuff like that. And that's just not true. Did he have any brothers or sisters? Was he married? Regarding marriage, the text oddly. We would expect it to say something if he weren't married, and we'd also expect it to say something if he were married, based on the nature of the text, and it doesn't really say anything either way. And so 
Yeah, we, we don't know for sure. I would say I personally, probably 55% to 45% think he probably would have been married. Um, but at the same time, there are some parts of the Gospels that seem to um, prioritize celibacy. And, uh, and so maybe Jesus was like Paul. Maybe Jesus was a celibate who swore off women and, and sexuality entirely. We, we don't know. Um, and yes, the indications are that Jesus had brothers and sisters. The texts indicate that. And then Josephus refers to uh, Jesus as the brother of, of this one James, who is referred to in the New Testament. And so I, I think the preponderance of evidence indicates that Jesus did have brothers and sisters. You want to do a fun one? Yeah. What's your favorite Bible conspiracy theory? <laughs> My favorite? I, I think the one that that baffles me the most, the one that I that just I'm just amazed by it, uh, is the idea that the Nephilim are are giants that are uh, that were discovered in Kandahar um, in Afghanistan by U.S. soldiers and that are being hidden by uh, the CIA. Uh, I think that's one that, uh, yeah, continues to amaze and astound me. Um, that's a fun one, but yeah, there are, <laughs> there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of fun ones. Um, the, who are the the Nephil? So in uh, in Genesis six, we have this discussion of the Bnei Elohim, the children of God, who come down and and marry the daughters of humanity and have children with them, and this is kind of set up as one of the reasons for the flood, why God is destroying humanity. But it says in that text, and there were Nephilim in the land in that day and after. And Nephilim, that word only occurs one other time in the book of Numbers, where the spies that Moses sent into the land come back and say that they're Nephilim. And, uh, and it is translated in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible as giants. And so the Nephilim um, become giants. And in the book of Enoch, it talks about the Nephilim as the offspring of the fallen angels and human women. And they're these grotesque giants who are basically the origin of evil uh, in Greco-Roman period Judaism. And so there's there are a lot of conspiracy theorists who suggest that the Nephilim are still around, that giants still walk the earth and they're hiding out in caves in Afghanistan. And uh, the U.S. government is... Uh, is hiding knowledge of these giants. And we even had you know, a, a couple months ago, somebody in Canada took video driving down a road and they saw a, a snow-capped mountaintop and they saw what they thought was a giant at the top. And then they came back the next day and they said they couldn't see it and they said it was walking. And it was really just a, a an antenna tower. Um, what does the Bible actually say about homosexuality? So homosexuality as a sexual orientation is not addressed anywhere in the Bible. They had no concept of sexual orientation as we understand it today. So the notion that someone would have this uh, interior impulse in one uh, of a few different directions across a spectrum, they, they had no understanding of that. That idea is something that developed in the 19th century. Now, they did know about same-sex intercourse, but they accounted for it in different ways. So uh, if, if a man uh, habitually wanted to have intercourse with other men, it was explained in different ways depending on whether they um, intended to be the active partner. Uh, sometimes we refer euphemistically to the 
uh, active partner as a way to refer to the insertive partner, the one doing the penetrating. And if uh, someone habitually sought out the passive role, then that was explained in a different way as more of a pathological problem. So they had different ways to account for it. But in every place where it seems to be mentioned in the Bible, and that amounts to about five places, uh, Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20, verse 13, and then we have Romans 1, verses 26 and 27, we have 1 Corinthians 6, uh, and we have a passage in 1 Timothy. Uh, it is condemned, but they're condemning specific acts, and they are limited acts. Nobody is saying anytime anything like this happens, this is all bad. It's saying these guys over here and these guys over here. Uh, and they're doing it for different reasons. In Leviticus, the idea is that these acts will pollute the land, that this like metaphysically generates contamination that will pollute the land. And so that must be uh, accounted for. And when we look at the broader ancient Southwest Asian worldview back then, we can explain why they thought the way they did. And it largely had to do with uh, social hierarchies of domination and, and penetration. Sex was primarily an act that a man did to a woman who was not considered an active autonomous partner in this mutual act, but was just considered the object of the man's um, sexual activity. And one of, the, one of the things that I point out as a way to, to illustrate that, particularly in Leviticus, is that in Leviticus 18 and 20, you have a bunch of rules about appropriate and inappropriate sex. And every last rule is about who a man is allowed to have sex with. There's only one, once in Leviticus 18, once in Leviticus 20, where it prohibits a woman from engaging in sexual activity with a specific partner. And that's with an animal. Because an animal is the only, um, not even person, is the only entity on that hierarchy of domination that the woman would be higher than. And so for everything it's referring to what men are allowed to do and the only time it refers to what women are allowed to do or not allowed to do, uh, the partner is an animal. So this is about power. This is about domination. And it is associating the act of penetration with the power and the act of being penetrated with being subordinate, uh, which was why men, for instance, at that time, were not supposed to be on the bottom. Uh, that was considered emasculating. That was taking a passive or a submissive role. And so even if a man was having intercourse with his own wife and everything else was totally copacetic, if he was on the bottom, that was a no-no. And uh, we have ancient Mesopotamian te texts that say, you know, he'll be robbed of his masculine vitality for a month. And then we have um, a uh, Talmudic text that says that uh, for a man to be on the bottom uh, will give him diarrhea. Uh, and so this their sexual ethic was based on these concepts of domination and, and power asymmetries and things like that. So this is why... Um, same-sex intercourse was considered problematic. And then we get into Paul, and Paul didn't like sex really at all. Paul was a celibate. He wanted everybody to be celibate. He recognized not everybody could hack it. And so he said, look, you can get married if you need to as long as you are only having enough sex to make you not want to have sex. And it was supposed to be passionless. Uh, he said that uh, a man must possess his vessel, and that means possess his wife, 
uh, in honor and holiness, not with the desire of passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, this was something that you did only so that you would not have a desire to do it more. Uh, so, so Paul's sexual ethic was pretty bizarre to begin with. It's not a surprise that he did not approve of same-sex intercourse. But when we talk about negotiating with the text, which is something that everybody must do, I don't think that there's a great argument that we should hold on to that prohibition while abandoning all the other aspects of the sexual ethics. Pretty much everybody who appeals to Romans 1 or to 1 Corinthians 6 or those other texts to try to vilify or demonize same-sex intercourse is already rejecting other aspects of Paul's sexuality just because they don't care about it, but they care about this one. And so I think the only reason that people still use the Bible as a weapon against the LGBTQ plus community is because they find some kind of value in doing so. Um, it's not because they're required by the Bible to, because they're already rejecting other aspects of the Bible. So, was there was there a reason that they would have been against sex, right? Like maybe they thought it caused earthquakes or whatever. Like, was there <laughs> some kind of a reason that would have made sense at the time that they had these attitudes, or was it just like, man, that's just there was just this guy he he didn't like. <laughs> Uh, I think the, the idea is borrowed from uh, broader Greco-Roman uh, philosophical ideas about uh, sexual desire and um, any kind of powerful sense of desire being something that could be corrosive. If it gets out of control, it can cause problems because everybody recognized that, that there were ways that sex could be uh, a problem. And so sexual desire was something that the philosophers suggested you had to keep under wraps. And depending on the philosophy, like Pythagoreans uh, thought it was, you know, everybody should be celibate. Uh, to some degree, the Stoics felt the same way, but not as strictly. And then uh, Platonists were a little different. But the idea was basically that sexual desire is something that we have to overcome in order to um, overcome, you know, the vicissitudes of the flesh, the the corruption of our corporeal world so that we could transcend it spiritually and return to be with God. And so one of the things that developed from this idea was the ideal of celibacy. And that is a what's called a credibility enhancing display. Uh, it's a piece of costly signaling. It's a way to say, I care so much about our group's ideals that I am going to uh, incur this social cost, and in this case, abstaining from sex, in order to put on display, in order to signal to others how faithful I am to the group. Uh, and I think that's the world that Paul um, is in. Now, some people have mentioned that Paul may have been uh, asexual himself. He may have, uh, you know, not been, he may have not been gender conforming or something like that. And that's certainly perfectly plausible as well, but we won't really know for sure. But certainly celibacy had currency within certain groups as uh, something that showed you were more committed to the group, the ideals, and the philosophy. Is there a Bible verse or a passage or a book or whatever that even among academics, like what would you say is the most controversial aspect of the Bible? <laughs> Aside from the, like, the political hot button stuff, like that... Uh -huh. that academics would be talking about? 
So there, there are a handful, and it depends on what field you're talking about, because there are a lot of different disciplines associated with the study of the Bible. So uh, one that I think is interesting that I've talked about quite a few times on, on my own channel is the idea of child sacrifice in ancient Israel and the idea of Moloch as some kind of pagan deity to which people sacrifice their children. The debate is not as heated now as it was 10, 20 years ago. I think it's starting to settle down, but... The position used to be that um, child sacrifice was only something that apostate Israelites did. But there's this passage, Exodus 22, 28 in the Hebrew, it's verse 29 in the English, but it seems to be God themselves commanding Israel sacrifice their firstborn children. And uh, a lot of people don't like, didn't like that interpretation. And now I would, I would say that the... Uh, the tide has kind of turned, and most scholars now acknowledge or would acknowledge that, yeah, this was probably a very early command of child sacrifice that was later renegotiated even anciently. And uh, associated with that is this idea that people were offering children to Molech, some kind of pagan deity. And the tide has turned there as well toward understanding this word Molech not to refer to a deity, but just as a, it's a noun that just refers to a specific type of sacrifice. And so rather than offering children to Molech, it is, they're offering their children as a Molech sacrifice. Um, and one of the reasons that that's uncomfortable for a lot of folks is because the implication there is that the sacrifice is being offered to the God of Israel. So that's something that has been uh, a big debate among Hebrew Bible and uh, scholars of ancient Israelite religion that I think is starting to settle down now. And I think we're getting to the point where it's a consensus, although there will be, be people out there who would disagree with me. Um, and then in the in the Christian scriptures, Paul is always a big deal. Um, there was this idea about um, uh, there's a new approach to Paul where rather than seeing Paul as this Christian who is breaking from his earlier tradition, people wanted to understand Paul within Judaism. How is Paul's Judaism informing Paul's uh, presentation of Jesus and uh, Jesus's gospel? But that was kind of uh, appropriated for kind of a Protestant approach to understanding Paul and even had some anti-Semitic problems with it as well. So the new approach to Paul has been itself kind of uh, controversial among scholars of uh, the New Testament. But there are, there are other ideas as well. Um, one, there's one thing I'm working on a book right now on early Christology, on how Jesus was understood to relate to the God of Israel, whether Jesus was understood to be God during the composition of the New Testament, or if that was a later understanding that developed. There are a lot of more conservative Christian authors who argue that Jesus was understood to be, in some sense, God from the very beginning. And then there, uh, I am on the side of other scholars who would argue that the idea is something that developed in the second, third, and fourth centuries. So Bart Ehrman wrote a book on this, for instance, called How Jesus Became God. And then um, a handful of evangelical scholars got together and wrote a response called How God Became Jesus. Uh, so that's that's another debate that uh, is kind of more in my wheelhouse that I'm actually participating in right now. And, and um, yeah, I've got a bunch of videos on that on my channel as well. And every time I post a video on that, I get a bunch of people <laughs> upset with me. Yeah, but, uh, I'm used to that. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine this can be a controversial field. People people tend to take religion quite seriously. Um, yeah. What TV show or movie drives you nuts? 
<laughs> um, I, I joke about the Prince of Egypt because um, uh, that was a, a movie that my my wife really enjoys. And I enjoyed the music in The Prince of Egypt, but it was kind of a, a running joke for a long time that every time we watched The Prince of Egypt, I was like, ah, no, they got the, it's the wrong, the wrong side of the river and, you know, all that kind of silly stuff. Um, I think there's st- people are starting to do a better job of understanding the ancient world. Uh, the Da Vinci Code was awful, and that has... Uh, <laughs> That has caused a lot of misunderstandings about a lot of things. So that's one that, that drives me nuts. But like Moon Knight, did you watch Moon Knight? I did, uh, yeah. So um, one of the funnest things about being in an um, academic community made up of a bunch of people who, you know, they're Egyptologists and um, other things like that in my um, social circles was the next day seeing them on Twitter saying, here's what the hieroglyphs or the demotic text, or that inscription that they showed on Moon Knight last night actually says. Um, and they're, and it's clear that they're actually starting to incorporate uh, consultants who know what they're talking about as they design these things. So um, it's been fun to see um, a lot of the uh, these creators of movies and television shows get better and better informed about the ancient world. Oscar Isaac did oh, a fantastic uh, job in that. Yeah, he, he's an incredible actor. I would say there is one Netflix special that just came out, and for the life of me, I can't remember what it's called, but I do remember hearing about it, and I know it's from someone who is not a reputable scholar, but it got a lot of attention. I, I, <laughs> I think I, I know which one you're talking about. Um, yeah. this, save this one for last. This is the biggest question. What are the What are the chances we got this all wrong? <laughs> um, hi. Uh, I think there, if we, if time travel became a reality and we were able to go back into this, uh, into the world of the composition of the Hebrew Bible or the world of the composition of the New Testament, and we were able to learn the language and communicate, I think we would be shocked at how different everything is from what we expect it to be. And I think if we brought people from the past to today, they would be shocked at what everything became. Uh, and and I think there was probably a lot more disagreement anciently that uh, regarding you know how this is all supposed to work. Uh, I think many of the authors of the New Testament vehemently disagreed with each other. Um, in fact, we talked about the Epistle of James. I think the Epistle of James is telling Paul he's wrong, and is directly saying, "No, Paul, you're wrong. It is not faith, faith without works. It is uh, you know it is by works that." Uh, that our faith is made whole. So uh, I think there's a lot of disagreement, and I think it is would be very different from how it is today and how even scholars have reconstructed it. I wish that that would be a possibility at some point, but, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's always going to be a dream. That's pretty much all the questions we got. What's kind of coming up next for you? How can people find out more, connect with you, that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I go by uh, McClellan on all my social media channels. So that's the phonetic spelling of my last name that I used when I was living in South America uh, because Spanish speakers aren't fond of last names that begin with four consonants in a row. So um, I spell it M-A-K-L-E-L-A-N. So on YouTube, on Twitter, on Instagram, on on TikTok. I'm going to be recording the first episode of a new podcast that I'm starting today. So... um, I am hoping to see that launch the first week of March. It'll be called the Data Over Dogma podcast. 
Uh, and we are, are hoping to have uh, at least uh, three or four episodes come out in March and, uh, and we'll be rolling, we'll be off to the races. So I'm very excited about that. Cool, man. Congratulations. Yeah. I want to thank Dr. McClellan so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, we have linked to him on our social media sites. We're profoundly pointless on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. And we have also included his information in the episode description. He does a great job on some of his content about breaking down biblical passages. And also, it can be really entertaining when he takes a look at some of the conspiracy theories that are out there. So if you want to hear more from him, like he mentioned, he's just launched a new podcast, and any of his social media channels are worth checking out if you're interested. Okay, now let's bring in John Shaw and get to the pointless part of the show. Could you hold up what you consider to be your first finger? Uh, yes, there. Okay, so for the record, you have held up your index finger, correct? Well, you said my first finger, right? Yeah, but that's your index finger, right? It should be, because the thumb technically isn't counted as a finger. So, and then how many fingers would you say that you have? Mm, See, that's where it gets a little tricky. Because I'm pretty sure I would say I have five fingers, but you asked me to hold up my first finger. Right. I still think it's my first finger, but I definitely think I have five fingers, if that makes sense. That's what I mean, right? Like you're holding up your index finger as your first finger, but it's not your first finger. Then you I'm, would have to only, if, if you consider that to be your first finger, then you only have eight fingers. You don't have ten fingers. So what if I held up my pinky first? That throws the whole thing off. I just had to count on the fact that you wouldn't, no one considers the pinky to be their first finger. You would hold up either. The thumb, if you consider the thumb to be a finger, or your index finger. What if you held up your middle finger? As then you're really throwing the game off. Then you're just kind of then you're kind of like, all right. Then my response would be like, okay, but hold up what you really think is your first finger. I'm actually proud of you that you didn't hold up your middle finger. I generally don't. That's one of my pet peeves: is people who flip off the camera in pictures. <laughs> I mean, listen, I was an annoying picture taker for a long time. I would not take a picture without opening my mouth or, you know, or uh, sticking out my tongue. It just it just ruins it. I, yeah, I, so I agree with you. I, I'm not a big fan of people who now, like as I get older, I'm not a big fan of people who purposefully ruin photos. Mm, yeah, but I am also a photo ruiner. I don't usually like to have my picture taken. You are an enigma. I'm not sure we have any photos together outside of wedding photos. How many pictures of yourself do you have? I would, I would make a strong argument that unless it revolves around somebody's job in a certain way, I would make an argument that most men have maybe five pictures of themselves. Not, not with other oh, people, man. just a picture of them. <laughs> I think it's less than that. I don't have any photos just of me like that that are printed out, ready to go. I've I've zero. I mean, why, why would I? Yeah, I don't have any. I have a headshot photo that everybody gets, right? <laughs> like when you start a new job. But other than that, I don't have a single picture of just myself. Actually, in thinking of it, I'm pretty sure 
that I have more photos of other men than I do of myself. Oh, yeah, I have way more pictures of other men than I do of myself. Hell, if you take my baseball card collection alone, I have thousands of photos of other men, and I have zero of me. Do you have thousands of baseball cards? You going to trade that in one day for $6? I I wish I could... Uh, uh, what's what's the, uh, the phrase I'm going for? I wish I could... Uh, Get all that money back? Yeah, pretty, yeah, it is. It is kind of a scam. I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah, that's a pretty big waste of money. Um, can we go back to the fingers thing? So you consider you believe that you have ten fingers, even though you consider your first, even though you don't count the thumb to be a finger. Yeah, but that doesn't make any sense when you say it like that because, and I make no sense in saying that. So really, it's all me. But I I, I look at the thumb as a finger, but I know there's going to be educated people out there. Who are listening to this? Who are going to say you only have eight fingers and two t- two thumbs? The thumb is the first finger on your hand. That's what I'm going to go ahead and write that on my tombstone. I want. Th- I'm going to make a shirt that says the thumb is the first <laughs> finger on your hand. If anybody would actually buy a shirt that says the thumb is the first finger on your hand, we'd make them. But I don't feel that way about toes. I think all my toes are the same. I don't look at the big toe as being oh, any God, as being dude. special. I have, for a man, I've been told I have very nice feet, but I think it's because literally all of my toe, like, obviously I have a big toe and a, and a little toe, but the three middle toes are literally the same. They look the same. They're the same length. Who told you that you had nice feet? I mean, I've been told multiple times by different women, some who were with me and some who were not, that I have nice Nice toes and feet. Then I think about, like, does the rest of me look that bad that they have to look at my feet? Mm, yeah, they're or, going, they're really sizing you up. So either they're completely yeah. sizing you up, like, ooh, I better check all of him out. Or they're, like, <laughs> looking for the one ray of sunshine on an otherwise dark yeah. day. Yeah, I, I think that's it. They're trying to part the seas <laughs> and try to get to the dock. <laughs> you know, they're not, they had to they, go all the way to the foot. <laughs> they... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're starting at the top, and if they get that far down, that's the only compliment. That's uh, oof. Have you ever been told by a man that you have nice feet? No. If if ever I get an honest compliment from a man, it's usually about my hair or my eyebrows or something. Usually something to do with like how much hair I have on my head. Hmm. I have been complimented by other men about. Um... My calves <laughs> and my eyes. Like, oh, you do have nice eyes. You do have you do have those European, like, Icelandic eyes, that's for sure. Like a blue Gatorade bottle just echoing in the soft tail of an ocean, just flying. I, I appreciate the fact that you refer to Gatorade. I, didn't, I thought that you wouldn't do that, that you would refer to it by its actual name and not by the color, which is the accepted way to really refer to any kind of flavored drink well you refer to first it all, i think color. the name i think the name of these drinks are idiotic but yes i will call it blue gatorade because that's what it is if it's gatorade so if you call it gatorade is gatorade is is lemon lime right lemon lime flavor because that's the original no i don't i know it's yellow i'm not looking well, at the okay. flavors okay right exactly I'm looking at the exactly. color like a normal person yeah i'm i'm with you man give me blue cool raspberry all day 
See, but even there, I'm just give me the blue one. Give me the red one. White glacier. I do I have actually. I would say that the white cherry. I know it's called white cherry because my wife likes it. And she's like, "Oh, get white cherry," and I'm like, "What? What the hell is that? Is that the red one or the white one?" She's like, "No, it's the white one." So now I know that that's called white cherry. Yeah, why would the red one be called white cherry? Well, it's got a cherry in it. Yeah, but why would it be like the red one's fruit punch? You ever seen a white peach? It's still peach colored. You think I've seen a white peach? No. He doesn't look like no, doesn't look like a man who spends a lot of time in the produce section of the grocery store. Unless no, it's lost. I mean listen, I eat vegetables <laughs> and, and some fruit, but give me meat. meat. I've actually started eating vegetables. It's not that bad. I went to hibachi this past weekend. I forgot yeah. how much I appreciate and love hibachi. It's fantastic. I don't actually know what it is. Is hibachi I mean, just the thing where the guy's with all the knives and he's throwing sh- stuff at you? He's not throwing it at you. He's basically they have a, a hot top and they cook. You know, they cook your food in front of you and they put on a little show. You know, we took our my daughters who had never been and they they loved it and it was it was just a really good time. Wait a minute, how expensive is hibachi? Cool. I don't want to. I don't want to get into it, but I can tell you it was over three digits. I'm not taking my children anywhere where they can't eat for less than six dollars. <laughs> <laughs> There's nowhere unless you go fast food where they can eat for under six dollars. Yeah, that's the only place I'm taking my children to go eat. I'm not taking them to fine dining over their money bags. I mean, listen, you got you gotta you know you play you work hard and you play hard with your four year old and two year old at hibachi. Right. I would imagine that that sounds that sounds awful. Okay. Oh my goddamn life is gone. Yeah, it's a sad, uh, it's a sad ending for a man <laughs> with such great toes. I do have pretty fantastic toes. Uh, all right, let's give some shout-outs here. Uh, uh, all right, Teresa White, Jennifer Finley, Brad Simpson, Ahmed Bouquet, Thomas Frazier, Dylan Weaver, Chance Brand. Mm. Chance is an interesting name. I like that one. It's good. It, it's uh, rare, but it has to be rare. It can't have a lot of them. It can only have a few uh, chances. Uh, Michael Atkinson, Ben Bolton, and uh, Jacob Walters. Y'all get the uh, the shout-outs for the week. Okay. All right. Uh, what would you rather travel around in? A uh, a yacht, a fancy bus, or a fancy airplane? Well, fancy airplane because I could go the most places. I understand the appeal of being on a fancy boat. Like, that would be pretty nice. But ultimately, yeah. it takes kind of a while to get around. I'd rather, much rather just travel around in a fancy airplane. Moly, mo- simply because of the efficiency of the means of transportation. Uh, what would be worst, worse off to you? Uh, falling out of an airplane, drowning on a cruise ship, or falling off a cruise ship, rather, and drowning, I should say, or being in a, uh, you know, in a bus accident? Just being a passenger in a gigantic bus accident. Well, I mean, am I going to die? Because in the first two circumstances, it sounds oh, like yeah. I'm pretty much going to die. Oh, yeah. You're, you're, you're dead. There's no way of getting out of this one. Well, where am I at on the bus? Am I going <laughs> to linger for a little bit or is it instant death? Yeah. Yeah. You're going to linger in all of them. Like, you're going to know what's happening. There's no possibility of me being saved. No, not not in this scenario because I don't want that to happen. Hmm. 
That's kind of tough, man. Is my family with me? My, my, my no, mom. I don't want to be morbid. No, you're alone. So I'll, I'd say I'll be next to you. It's me and you going out together. Oh, well, then falling out of an airplane. <laughs> Why was that so easy to make th- that decision if I was I don't know. It seems like if you're going to die and you know you're going to die, at least, like, hey, see some sights on the way <laughs> down. At least get a good well, view, right? You could at least... Would you, here's the question. If you were falling to death out of an airplane, if you fell out of an airplane, would you look at the ground or look at the sky? Well, I, I don't think you're going to really know, right? Because now making light of people who have perished in plane crashes, I'm pretty sure that you pass out before you get close enough to the ground before impact. So you're going to pass out at some point, I would think. Now, if you're unfortunate and stay awake... Uh, I'd probably rather be looking at the ground because I mean, I, I wouldn't want to see my death. Like I just would want it to come. You know what I mean? If that makes any sense. So if you were like, looking at the ground though, you would see it coming. I would want to be looking up at the sky and just being like, Oh, and then boom, you wouldn't even know it, man. You could just be thinking about like, Oh, it was... no, so I, you... I would, you know, knowing it's going to happen, I would just close my eyes and just wait, wait for the impact. I mean, there's nothing else to do. Like, there's no that that has to be the worst, one of the worst feelings you can ever possibly. Like, well, obviously you're going to die. That has to be one of the worst feelings imaginable. It's just knowing there's no way out. Like, it's th- going to happen. I, I mean, Ryan ironically was reading a book. No, I, you weren't. No, I was. I actually was reading a book. Uh, I don't remember the name of it. The Body or something, A Guide for Occupants. And the author was talking about there's actually been a surprising number of people who have fallen out of airplanes and lived. Like, like, <laughs> okay. Like more you than can't one. can't say that. Well, I mean, he didn't provide statistics about it, but it has happened several times throughout the past. I would honestly make an argument that if you fell off of, Falling out of an airplane, the, that if you were to compare falling out of an airplane and falling off of a cruise ship in the middle of the ocean, I bet you have better odds of surviving falling out of the airplane. I mean, oof. Well, I, I mean, it, it, I see a 0% either way, but I guess yeah. I would give the nudge to falling out of an airplane because yeah, you fall overboard in a cruise ship. Uh, I mean, th- yeah. I think Unless you, they get you within ten minutes, the ship's gone. You're, you know, you're under current. Plus, most of those ships are ten, you know, twelve stories up. If you fall that high into the water, you're probably going to break your your back or your neck or whatever. Or, or yeah, just I die. think you're done. I think you're done before you hit the water. So the choices this week to talk about. Uh, apparently, you're going to be able to buy Narcan over the counter. That sounds like a great idea. Uh, Tom Sizemore, uh, Narcan, uh, Noxalone, it's it's what they give the police and fire and EMTs give, uh, drug overdoses to bring them back. Yeah. It's, I mean, drug overdoses are a huge problem. I think the United States crossed like 110,000 in the last couple of, in the last year. It's a big problem. It probably sounds like a good idea to be giving people Narcan, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty powerful, but let's, you know, whatever. I'm sure it'll be regulated. Uh, Tom Sizemore dying. Who's Tom? Who's Tom Sizemore? Jesus. Uh, you ever seen Saving Private Ryan? Yeah. Uh, so he was like Tom Hanks's like best friend or best you know army buddy. Yeah, just terrible. Also a Detroit native, so 
Obviously, oh, there we go. It's everybody from Detroit is more important than anybody else. Uh, last choice that did not win was Creed Three, which you know apparently it's been getting uh, good reviews and check it out. I guess I haven't seen it. I still haven't seen Cocaine Bear, which I want to see. So, Cocaine Bear sounds amazing. I haven't seen any of the Rocky movies past Rocky Four. Right? If you see the um, height of civilization, you don't need to see the decline. <laughs> I mean, listen, I. I think it's great what they did with the franchise. I mean, if, if they wanted to yeah. keep it going, this was the suitable way. And it brings it full circle because they tried doing the Rocky Sun thing. Didn't work out at all. So why not give Apollo Creed's son a chance? And Michael B. Jordan's just amazing in general. So The other dude in there who I think is also Kang is massive. Like, whoa, man. <laughs> He's been lifting and probably doing oh. some other stuff. But yeah, Okay, so what stuff. actually won? Uh, so, <laughs> uh, apparently, you can now live on a cruise ship for thirty grand a year. Food included. And, uh, yeah, everything. Um, essentially, it's a it's a th- a three year voyage. It's a hundred and one hundred and thirty thousand miles uh, that you travel uh, cumulatively. For $30,000 per person per year. You do not have to, obviously, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, dedicate or uh, say you're going to go for all three years. But if you want to go for one year, it's 30000 And, uh, yeah, you visit 135 countries, 375 ports, and you go all around the world, naturally. And, uh, yeah, everything's everything's included. It's just a regular cruise ship ticket except it's for an entire year and you visit literally more than half of the world's countries that actually sounds fairly cheap for that i would think that that would be more expensive i mean thirty thousand dollars <laughs> a year for f- food and lodging yeah so it's uh the mv gemini it's uh the life at sea cruises is the i guess the company that is responsible for the ship and uh Listen, be- I would do it. If I had 30 grand to spend, I would do it. I love cruising. I had a bad experience. I didn't enjoy it. There's two kinds of cruising. There's cruising to go see places, like you're taking a cruise to Alaska, you're taking a cruise around Europe, and then there's like getting on a carnival cruise and going to like the Bahamas and just basically, it's essentially <laughs> just a party. There's like traveling cruising, and then there's like, hey, this is a party on a boat cruising. And I was not too big of a fan of the party on the boat cruising. Okay. Uh, I mean, I loved it all. I've been on mul- uh, multiple cruises, at least six, and I, I love every second of it. I, wow. Are you ready? Could, Are you ready for our top five? Yeah, I'm I'm actually kind of I – di- I did some research on this, and uh, surprisingly, it, it wasn't difficult. So let's let's get to it. So because we had kind of a fairly serious guest, we decided to come up with something a little bit ridiculous for our top five. So it's top five running <laughs> actors. All right, so I'm. I think I'm lowballing this performance, but I'm. I'm going to put my number five as Robert Patrick, as T two from the Terminator Two. Are you serious? I know, right? I I know. I. But I'm telling you, and maybe you have these, but it's it's a loaded top five in terms of runners. I mean, there was lots of actors that have had lots of good roles running, and I I didn't want to put him at five. But I'm confident in my other four. Okay. I think that's a ridiculous place to place him. 
I have okay. much higher on the list. My number five is Johnny Depp. Really only for Jack Sparrow. Not a good runner. Obviously not a good runner, but it is a memorable run. The most the most memorable movie run since Jim Carrey as Ace Ventura Pet Detective. As no, in an orthodox you... running set style. I will say I will, I will agree with you that he that it is known. Uh he's actually on my honorable mention, but I I I think there are other scenes and other runners that uh maybe don't get the acclaim that he got, but uh they are much they're just much better scenes and runners, I think. So in in saying that, unless you, you have something else to say I about do, Johnny I Depp. Know, who do you think, though, is the better goofy runner, Johnny Depp or Jim Carrey? I mean, I don't really recall uh, uh, Jim Carrey being like a a wacky runner, you know, I but I recall Johnny Depp. So I'm going to say Johnny Depp. I think that really the Johnny Depp is the more recent one. But if you think back to the Ace Ventura running you can like oh he was the original he may have been the better weird runner anyway what's your what's your number 4 uh Harrison Ford from Raiders of the Lost Ark oh yeah okay yeah. i mean he how did... can you forget that scene and he looks he just looks i mean he was awesome as Indiana Jones i mean if you haven't seen those movies specifically Raiders of the Lost Ark which you should because they are amazing they're fantastic okay I did not have Harrison Ford on any of those lists, but I can now that you think of it, I can picture him running quite well. Um, my number four is all from one movie franchise. I think there's a lot of good candidates for it, but ultimately my number four is Carl Weathers. Okay. Uh, think of the obviously Rocky I know scene. I know the one right, but he he was an effortless runner. He had to try to like you could clearly tell that he was a much better rock runner than Rocky. The other one I could put from that franchise is Dolph Lundgren. Remember in Rocky Four where he's running around the track and you're like, oh, he's running. He looked like, yeah. like they both looked like, Stallone looked like a guy trying to run. Carl Weathers and Dolph Lundgren look like athletes. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get to the Rocky series. I have it a little higher up on my list. So. Okay. But if you're going to put Rocky up there, I'm going to have to shoot it down because Carl Weathers was clearly the better runner. All right, all right. Well, you're going to hate. You're not going to like this number three then for me. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, but my number three is Tom Hanks from Forrest Gump. Okay. It's a good. It's a very memorable scene. I didn't have it, it on my list, but I thought about it really hard. I, I, I think whether or not he looks like a good runner. Uh, uh, he he plays it well, and uh, it's I mean it's a large part of the movie, and he he does it he does it really well. I think he, you know, I think Tom Hanks has said that he hates running, uh, but he 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 lost all the weight. He he got into running, and he looked he looked natural. I think. Now, which running scene though do you remember the most? Do you remember the one with him as a kid? The one with him as a football player? The <laughs> one with him running in the war? The one with him running across country? Yeah, so it's the one that I like. If you were to ask me, like you just did, to pick out one scene, it would for sure be the uh, where he's running cross country, and it's raining, and the person gives him the t-shirt, mm. and he's muddy, and he, I, he maybe a car splashes mud on him. I don't remember the finer details. Oh but he yeah, wipes his face off, and it's the smiley face. Have a nice day, slogan. 
The one that stands out to me the most is where he finishes running and he's like, I'm going to go home now. But only because I lived in Arizona and people would always take pictures of that spot. So you would oh. always see it come across like your feed of people taking pictures in that spot. My number three is Tom Cruise. I, I didn't put him on my list. And I, I, sh- I know I should have. I, I didn't. For the, for the fact that he I, – I don't think he looks like a cool runner. I, I, I he think doesn't. Kind of, kind of what you had said right. earlier about somebody like – looking like they, they don't run well he just he doesn't look like he runs i mean i would say this and this is also my honorable mention but uh um what's his face uh from the born ultimatum uh matthew matt damon uh, da- matt damon like yeah they are great action actors and those scenes are fantastic but they just don't look natural to me no no one runs like that like no one no. actually runs like that there is a level of intensity or trying too hard that no one who's a good runner actually looks like that like if you ever watch like an olympic sprinter like they don't look like they're really trying to run that hard good runners don't look like they're trying fucking insane usain bolt that you know turns around during the 100 meter dash at the guy coming in second in the olympic final i mean what are you doing right well when you got it you got it okay are you is it your number two or my number two uh so i believe it's my number two and i think I know this isn't going to make any sense, but I, I'm going to stand by it. My number two is going to be Brad Pitt from Troy. Specifically, the fighting scene with him and Eric Bana, where they're running around each other and doing all these f- cool jumps and runs. And I mean, come on. It doesn't get any cooler than Brad Pitt, and he looked so natural doing it. Doing it. Hmm. I don't remember it at all, and I've seen that movie, which to me automatically should signify that it shouldn't even be on the list. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a running scene. It's more of an athletic scene, but he he's definitely running in it, and uh, that, I mean that's how he kills Eric Bana at the end. Is he like does his little run thing and twirls? Okay, you know, spear. Unusual, unusual choice. My number two is Chris Evans. Oh, I should have known. He's a good runner. He makes it – that to me is like the gist of the running, right? Where like, oh, you're going pretty fast. You look like you're running pretty hard, but it doesn't look like you're running. Like, okay, all right, you're, that's good running. I think Chris Evans has great running form. I mean, at least you didn't say the guy that plays in the, the new Jurassic Parks. can't remember his name. The guy that was married to Anna Ferris. That's Chris Pratt, I think. Yeah, thank God you didn't say him. No. He's, see, now he's an example of what I think that Tom Cruise is, in which they're trying to convince you that they're athletic and a good runner, but not. Tom Cruise yeah, runs like a person who has been taught. Tom Cruise runs <laughs> like a person acting like they can run. He doesn't run like someone who can actually run. That's why he can't be up high on the list, and it's only there because he's known for it. I don't think he's actually a good runner. I would, I would beg. I mean, he's so little too. I would, I don't really think he's much of an athlete, though. He's played predominantly masculine roles his whole career. I had a casting director that we had on very early on in this show who said the ir- irony about big time moving stars is that to be a big time male movie star, is you basically basically have to be a small man with a big head. <laughs> That's who looks the best on TV is people who are like five four, five five with big heads. Well, you would no wonder you're you're doing so well. I gotta get the head bigger, man. Gotta get some head big operations. I've got I'm actually too big. 
too. That's my problem. Uh, who's cool. your number one gonna be? Are you gonna say it's Rocky? Who's your number one gonna be? Rocky. Which movie? But the first, the original montage, the best running scene for him solo. You know, when he's running through the streets in his sweats and he runs up the steps and, you know, starts punching at the air, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I will say that the, the montage in Rocky Four with him and Dolph Lundgren is just as amazing as well. But I'm not giving any love to Dolph Lundgren. So goes all to Sylvester Stallone. My difficulty with putting Sylvester Stallone in that particular movie high is that when he walks out of the house, he jumps over the railing, which no person okay. would actually do. You wouldn't jump over the railing. And that just sets the tone for the whole thing being like, it's not, that's not accurate. You're not jumping over the railing. You're going to walk down the steps. You're going to warm up a little bit. You got to watch your knees. You got to take care of your body. <laughs> so he's not taking care of his body. I, I mean, I stand by, I think it's, you have to at least admit, I mean, you have it on your list that it's one of the top five iconic running roles in cinema history. I don't think that he's the best runner in that series. I think Carl Weathers is a better runner than he is. And I think that Dolph Lundgren is a better runner than he is. I would have no problem giving the props to either of those guys if they were the main characters. But obviously they weren't. They were great supportive characters, but they were not main characters. My number one is Robert Patrick. I think the guy oh, from wow, Terminator completely 2. completely flip-flopped for mine, huh? Yeah, I think the guy from T2, the T1000 or whatever his number is, I think that he is hands down the best runner in movies. Because he looked like someone, he looked like somebody who, number one, could run. Number two, he was going to catch you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that was that was pretty. Do you know the best part about Robert Patrick? No. He grew up in Metro Detroit. Oh, God, of course. Okay, who's in your honorable mention? <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, so like I said, any, any Tom Cruise movie, uh, Matthew Broderick from uh, Ferris Bueller. The run that he did in that movie was oh, that's a good run. Yeah, it looked. I mean, looked natural. Looked good. Uh, uh, Brendan Fraser in the Mummies. You know, yeah. that looked pretty natural. He looked pretty cool. Looked like a good run. Uh, uh, and then I have uh, Daniel Craig from his uh, James Bond movies that he did. He looked. You know, they always started the first scene very big. He was always running or something. Uh, always yeah. looked awesome. Little stiff, but I think that that was also part of the character, right? Like he looked like somebody who could run. I would also say that he suffers from the same thing as Matthew Broderick does, where they're kind of it's not just straight running, like they're doing <laughs> other stuff and things like that. So it it doesn't really allow you to focus on the running, as would like a Robert Patrick chasing down Sarah Connor. I mean, I agree. I mean, Robert Patrick was amazing in that that role. Uh, and then I have, last but not least, he, he may not look the coolest, but he is the coolest. And that was John Travolta in Greece where he's running track trying to impress Sandy. Okay. I've never seen that movie. Nor have any uh, well, desire to see that movie. Um, I had Daniel Craig. I had Laura Dern running in Jurassic Park. Oh, man. I mean, <sighs> it. That's fine, I guess, but I'd rather have Jeff Goldblum, I think. Yeah, Jeff Goldblum's the better scene, but I think that she is the better runner. Scarlett Johansson even, can run very well. 
or even uh, uh, Sam O'Neill, I think, probably has the best running in that whole movie with I don't the know. kids. Oh, yeah. That's a pretty good – but he's too distracted. You can't really see the form. He's got other things that he has to be doing. <laughs> We're checking elbows and knees. They got to be lateral. You know, they got to be ninety degrees. I get it. Who has good form, but I wouldn't consider them to be a great runner is Will Smith. He's got some yeah. iconic running scenes, and you can see if you look at like one of the trailers or things for one of the scenes from Bad Boys. I think it's Bad Boys or maybe Bad Boys Two, but he is juxtaposed <laughs> running with Martin Lawrence, and then you can clearly see that Will Smith is like, oh. Martin Lawrence can't run, and Will Smith is clearly running well. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. Will Smith, Martin Lawrence, they weren't put together as an acting duo because of their athletic similarities, I don't think. No, but it really showcases how much better of a runner Will Smith is. Uh, (laughs) I have one that I can't remember the guy's name. I keep wanting to say Leonard Nimoy, but that's not his name. He played Spock in one of the recent Star Treks. You're like, oh, Zachary Quinto? He could run. You're like, oh, he's got some some skills at running. I I mean, we should have just put the the guy that plays the Flash and the guy from The Boys that plays, uh, you know, the the, the fast character that can run like the speed of light. I forget his name now, but... Yeah, but I feel like if there's power is actually running, it shouldn't count. It is Zachary Quinto. Good running. He's a good runner. Also, I feel the need to give a shout-out because we talked about Rocky. Michael B. Jordan in Creed is also a very talented runner as well. Does not make my list because he's not an original, but uh, still good runner. Good form, good technique. I like it. Who do you? Who can you imagine is the worst runner that you can think of? Like, oh, oh, God. I mean, can't run. I mean, uh, Sylvester St- or not? Uh, not Sylvester, uh, Steven Seagal's probably terrible. Oh yeah. Uh, Dwayne Johnson is probably terrible. Which is ironic because he's but he's too muscular now, right? Like That's he couldn't pull off a good running, even though he is one of probably the more athletic Hollywood actors. He couldn't pull off a good run. Liam like Neeson, Mark Wahlberg. Oh yeah, That's like that fake athleticism, right? Yeah. Dude once said he could do forty pull-ups. No, you can't. Um, yeah, you cannot. Liam Neeson is a terrible runner. I like this. What's what's her name? I like this person as a musician and as an actress. Incredibly talented. Uh, Janelle Monet. There was a scene of her running in like the new Knives Out. It was like, oh, she's a awkward no. runner. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> okay. We talked about it earlier. I mean, I mean, I mean, Ace Ventura. You know, Jim Carrey, but. Nah, not not even not close, not good. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. Doesn't have to be anything big. Just like, hey, I like the show. John's toes really aren't that good. Anything at all really helps out with the algorithm. And you know that all of us are now subservient to the algorithm. Also, let us know what you think are some of the best running performances. I don't know how John could have Robert Patrick as number five and Rocky as number one. I mean, that, come on now. But 
I think that there are some good running performances, maybe some that we've never even thought of. So if you've got some, let us know. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.